This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. While we've made some progress in Australia towards greater representation of female leaders, particularly in certain industries, there are still significant structural and social obstacles that stand in the way of women making it to the top. So how do we get past this? I'm Kate Mills, the host of Women's Agenda's new podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this next episode, I'm joined by business leader and board director, Kirsten Ferguson. As the force behind the hashtag Celebrating Women's Social Media Movement, and the co-author of Womankind, Kirsten knows firsthand how effective it is when established female leaders actively propel emerging women up the ranks. It's not the answer to everything, but it certainly helps. So Kirsten Ferguson, it's an absolute pleasure to be here with you today. You have an absolutely phenomenal CV. Um, You're the deputy chair of the ABC. You're a non-executive director at a couple of companies, including SCA Property and EML Payments. And you're also the adjunct professor at the QUT School of Business. So I'm kind of wondering how you get it all done. But let's start with figuring out how you got there effectively, because you actually started your career in the military, didn't you? Um, So how did that come about? Do you come from a military, military background? Uh, I did start my career in the military, and yes, I do come from a military background, as so many do uh, who go into the military. I was 17, so I was at an all-girls school in Sydney and had decided I wanted to go to ADFA, and this is back in 1990, uh, and so only a few years after the Defence Academy started. And I remember my school counsellor sort of thinking, what on earth are you doing? Because no one from Skeggs, I was at Skeggs Stellinghurst, had gone before. But I loved every minute of it. And I think the idea had come because I was third generation. I haven't gone all the way back, probably more than that of um, army officer, uh, my father and my grandfather and his father. So I did understand, um, you know, the opportunities that joining the military could bring and particularly around the leadership opportunities as well. And so what were they? How long were you in the military for? And what was the biggest leadership lesson that you took away from that period? Uh, I did the first seven years of my career in the military. So um, spent a number of years at the Defence Academy where you are taught to be a leader. Uh, And then I served at, uh, I was in the Air Force, an Air Force base in Brisbane, which is how I came to live in my adopted state of Queensland, and I'm still living in Queensland. And I think the lessons um, that the military teach you, it's nothing like what you see portrayed in movies like Platoon or, you know, where they're all yelling at each other. There's certainly, uh, at the Defence Academy, there were elements of that, but um, what you're really taught is about earning the respect of the people you lead and the importance of um, being almost like a servant leader, which seems um, contrary to what many people think of the military, but the chain of command only works where people respect the people that they're expected to follow into battle, and you're taught that certainly from very early on. And I think that has served me really well uh, into the future. Yeah, it's interesting you say there it's nothing like how it's portrayed in the films because you're right, military leadership has a very specific view in in culture. You know, I think of um, you can't handle the truth, you know, that famous line. So it's really interesting hearing your insights. Yeah, well, they're in a court case. So, so, I mean, a bit of dramatic license there. Um, I still think that's one of the best lines in Hollywood movies. But I think it's more... Um, you know, that idea that you don't, you're all you need to do is scream at people and they'll do what you want. Um, when I was at the Defence Force Academy, it was very hierarchical and I was very fortunate to have um, 
being in a very senior position in my third year and I certainly practiced and saw you know this idea of yelling at younger cadets to get them to do what you wanted and I can assure you not only is it exhausting it's pointless um and you know that the moment you're not there people will do what they want to do and so it's um you know just not an effective way to lead at all. So you moved from there into an executive rule at law. So tell me a little bit about that. Why the move and, and how did you find the transition? Yeah, so I was at a squadron. Um, I was a walking cliche. I think I'd watched Top Gun too many times because I'd met my now husband of <clears throat> more than 20 years on the second day at the squadron. He was flying F-111s and um, the rest is history on that front. And I had begun studying law. I had always wanted to do law uh, at the Defence Academy. That wasn't an option. So the moment I had graduated from there, I started studying law and I intended to practice. My goal had been um, I would join a law firm and you know become a partner and that was my career trajectory. Uh, so while I was studying law, I was offered an opportunity to join um, a large national or international law firm. But in their support roles I was the I think I started as the operations manager or something like that and ended up becoming the the COO and uh it was a fantastic opportunity and I ended up getting admitted um and you know had this chance now to do exactly what I'd hoped I could do which was practice law and remarkably decided not to so um it was probably one of the first examples where I really trusted my gut because I was loving leading people. I was loving uh, doing, you know, building a business and working with people. And I had decided, even though it had been my passion forever, that I wasn't going to practice law, but I wanted to continue building businesses. So by this point, you've been in two different professions, both traditionally very male orientated. Are you starting to think about the role of women as leaders at at this point? Uh, I was still very much in denial, I think. I had spent most of my career, if I'm really honest, until much more recently, avoiding women's events, um, hoping no one noticed I was female at all because it had been the key to my success, I had thought, in my mind, uh, was fitting in and just working collaboratively in a male-dominated environment, not putting my head above the parapet and certainly not drawing attention to the fact I was female. And so even when I went to the law firms, I was leading in a support area, as I said, which is a much more traditional, you know, place for women to be. I wasn't opening my eyes to the fact there were barely any female partners. There were barely any women leading parts of the firm that were um, fee earning. It was really not something that I was conscious of and it took, um, probably my own experiences, but more so of others as I became more senior in my career to really open my eyes. Was there was there a particular moment when you felt like your eyes were, were opened? Uh, well, it was actually probably more so when I joined boards because after I left the law, I went and worked with a group of psychologists and we had more women working there than men. So it was actually quite the other way around and it was quite female dominated, particularly in the leadership roles. And so it was more that I just um, was able to go from one environment to another and not still not open my eyes to the, the challenges for women that weren't able to 
um, gain the same opportunities as men. And it was when I then went onto boards and I was able to see across a wide range of industries and a wide range of male-dominated, non-male-dominated cultures that were not embracing uh, diverse environments, whether at the board or in their businesses, that it really was obvious that we needed to, or that I needed to do something more. And that was about 12, I've been sitting on boards now for about 12 years. Mm, okay, look, I want to come in and explore your board career, but let's just, uh, I'll just talk a little bit about that. You mentioned that because, um, of course, you left law and you became the CEO of Centist, which is a group of psychologists. I, I was reflecting on this. I was thinking she's got a military background. She goes into law and then goes into psychology. They seem so incredibly different. Um, and yeah. what, what, what was the attraction? What did you learn from working with that group? Oh, I'm so grateful to uh, all of the psychologists that I work for. I think, well, firstly, you touched on a couple of things there that I definitely reflected on have been important parts of my own development. I think this ability to adapt your own leadership to different environments and um, use different styles that will be effective in different ways. So you're absolutely right. The cultures of leading in the military towards leading in a, a partnership of a law firm to then working with a group of psychologists is absolutely completely different. But what I was able to do, the psychologist really taught me the importance of creating and building a feedback culture to being in tune with um, a real self-awareness of the impact that you have on others and the power of your words and actions and thoughts on motivating and bringing people along with you. And I think this idea of emotional intelligence, which I'm just so passionate about, and combining that with some of the the more uh, task-oriented and um, goal-focused um, ways I'd learned to the military, I think, has been a really special source that I'm very grateful for. In your experience, uh, if you were advising other women, and I'm sure you do, about developing a board career, where would you start? Yeah, I was um, remarkably young to join boards. So I was offered my first board role at 35 my first listed board at 37. And looking back now, people said to me that it was too young and I was quite disdainful of what they meant. And, of course, we need diverse views around boards and that includes age diversity. But what I think they meant and what I think if I had my time again is that um, value you get in your executive career of leading and truly running organisations as I was doing as a CEO the longer you can do that, the more beneficial it is to the boards that you then join. So I think looking back, that's been an unusual part of my career. But then what I'm really pleased about is I'm 47 and I've already got 12 years of experience on boards and I hope to continue to use that for many, many years to come. So I think um, for women who are thinking about it, I do get a lot of women who were at my age wanting to move across. And I can't believe I've gone and found myself in the position of the people who were counselling me at the time saying, you know, make sure you really exhaust your executive career first because that will not only make the transition easier because you'll have all of that experience behind you that boards are looking for, it'll also just mean you'll have more sort of tools in your toolkit for the boards that you'll end up joining. And um, I just can't wait to have more and more women uh, joining the boards that I'm serving on. I, I love having diverse groups of people around the table. 
in your view, is female leadership different? Um, and, you know, there is there is quite a bit of research out there that shows that companies with strong female representation do outperform, although there's some, there are some debates around that, that research. Um, but do you believe in that? And do you think that female leadership is different? Oh, I think every individual has a different style and there are excellent female leaders and there's some pretty poor ones as well, just as there's brilliant male leaders and poor ones as well. So I think that research that show, and I believe the research that having women around boards um, leads to better performance, is not necessarily that we've got women, but that there's an openness uh, and a willingness to have diverse views around the table. And I think the more diverse people we can get making decisions, the better decisions we will make. And that includes women. So, I mean, now we're at a point that I'm really conscious that uh, I might be on a gender equal board, but the experience of both the men and women around the table are similar. You know, we might have all gone to similar sort of types of schools or be from similar socioeconomic backgrounds or similar ethnicities, whatever it might be. And so, yes, the gender lens brings a different way of thinking and it's really important and it should not disappear, but there's still a lot of diversity that needs to be injected um, into those decisions. Mm. And is the energy still there, do you think, at board level broadly for to um, pursue that type of diversity? And what I mean is um, there's been a lot of action and a lot of energy around female diversity, and you do start to see that coming through. I mean, I know that it's still not equal across the SX200, but you do see that increasing every year. Um, is the energy there to dig deeper on diversity across boards? No, I'm not sure it is. <laughs> And I, I haven't been asked that question for a while. I think there was a lot of push, uh, you know, and we got to 30%. There was a 30% club, but I worry now that we've reached 30%, bearing in mind that's not even, you know, 50%, uh, and we're taking our foot off the pedal. Um, I think there's a, obviously in 2020 there's so many other issues going on that the idea of diversity is perhaps being pushed down the list of priorities. Uh, and I'm not, uh, you know, I understand. That, that I understand that because I'm sitting around tables and there's a lot of other issues that we're having to confront. Uh, but I would hope that we start to think about putting women on boards, not that we need to fulfil, you know, the percentage increase, but that we just know it's the right thing to do and that we get better decisions and we get better outcomes and better performance from having those diverse views around the table. Now, um, Kristen, Kirsten, one thing I did notice about you is you've got a really fabulous website. So if anyone's listening to this, um, do go and check it out because it's really good and it shows the breadth of all the different things that you're doing. And, and one of them is you take questions from around the world on leadership. So I was watching some of those little videos um, and some really interesting questions, I thought. So you, you had one um, where somebody asked you, well, what is leadership? And it sounds like when I was watching, I was thinking it seems like such a basic question, but sometimes it's good to go back to basics. How do you define it? I know. That was uh a really interesting one because you think gosh that's like the three words three words and it's a bloody hard question to answer and I think people define it differently um so how I will define it will be quite different to someone else but for me it's all about um empowering and embold emboldening I don't even know if that's a word so that's not good leadership uh 
those that you lead to follow and to uh, develop themselves and to move everyone in the same direction of whatever your goal might be. It doesn't have to be a business goal. And I also believe that every single person is a leader. So whether you're leading your family, your community, your local church, your government, whatever it might be, you are a leader. And uh, we are role models and all of us are role models. So leadership for me is very broad and every single uh, issue that we see in the world, every crisis often comes back to poor leadership. So I think it's understanding the power and the impact that we all have on those around us and then harnessing that to bring us all along in the same direction. Mm. So you, you talk there about leadership in the context of external events. I mean, obviously, 2020, you know, we're in the middle of the pandemic, a huge health crisis and an economic crisis going around the world. What are the leadership lessons or thoughts that you have uh, with regards to the current crisis? Well, isn't it? Hasn't it just been the most <laughs> remarkable year? I mean, no one would have ever expected we'd live through this. And we are living through a real life leadership experiment. I think we're watching our political leaders, for just as an example, around the world and here in Australia, all have different leadership styles and different approaches. So it's going to be really interesting to see what, when we look back in, high, in hindsight, has been the most effective. But I think COVID has shown that leaders, and again, remembering I believe everyone is a leader, need to be confident to make decisions without all the answers or the data. So this view that I'll just wait and way up, you know, between two choices and see which one's best um, has been thrown out the window, particularly in the beginning where we had and we still have no idea, you know, what might happen next. And I think um, being transparent, and I wrote in Women's Agenda about this name for extreme transparency in the idea that just telling people to stay calm is, you know, probably the most anxiety-inducing couple of words you can hear because, of course, you worry about why they're saying that. But information is power, and the more information we get from our leaders, the more powerful we we feel and more in control of what is an uncontrollable situation. And then I also think that kindness and empathy um, have been really essential traits of leaders. And if you can be a leader that can simultaneously lead with kindness and empathy empathy while also being decisive and making decisions quickly without all the data. I think they're the leaders that we're seeing most successful today. Mm. There's one thing in there I just want to explore just a little bit. Um, and, and I think, you know, I absolutely agree with you around kindness and empathy. And it's really interesting to see those kind of attributes being, I think, more valued than ever in the current crisis. You also said, though, that information is power. As a leader, if when you look at how information is used, and I'm thinking of social media, news, etc., do you have concerns about information, information flows, what's true, what's not true? Yeah, well, there's a couple of issues wrapped up in there. I mean, the fake news um, issue is clearly something that should concern all of us. Um, and I think the lack of critical thinking that we see from people who believe what they, you know, their neighbour says on Facebook, and we know from the Edelman Trust Barometer that people do put a huge amount of trust in what someone like them might say on Facebook. That is something for us as leaders to confront. What is it that we're not you know, fulfilling that's causing people to look elsewhere for their information? Why is it they're not trusting what 
government officials might say or what business leaders might say. And so I'm always someone who, rather than feel it's the fault of the person who might be uh, seeking that information elsewhere, look at what our own personal responsibility is and what we can be doing better to make sure that the information we're provided is um, hitting the mark and is trusted. You, you're you also really well known, and that's actually one of the, I remember that's one of the first times I actually saw you, um, was through your hashtag Celebrating Women, so the social media movement. Can you explain to the audience what that was? Well, that became bigger than I ever anticipated, I could assure you. That uh, all began because I was pissed off, frankly. I was pissed off uh, and I'm still pissed off with the level of online denigration facing women. And it happened to be January 2017, and I don't know if you can and think back to that time, um, Trump had just been elected, uh, you know, and here's a man who was boasting about his sexual transgressions. Um, women were taking to the streets in numbers we'd never seen before in the women's marches, knitting their pink pussy hats, and I was just feeling pissed off. And I remember seeing a thread of abusive tweets aimed at one of the ABC journalists, Patricia Carvelis, and I thought, you know, if I was standing next to that person, I would do something, I'd say something, I might have called the police. But when you're online, you feel so powerless. And I just remember thinking I needed to try and do something. And don't forget, I said before, I never really put my head above the parapet. And I would, you know, tentatively retweet stories about gender equality, but I was by no means someone who was known, um, you know, as an activist in this area. And so I decided I wanted to try and make my newsfeed a bit more positive And I shared just the answers to four questions that I made up off the top of my head that I asked my mum and asked her to send me four photos. And I didn't tell anyone she was my mum and just shared her story. And people were interested and, you know, my life, my newsfeed was just a bit more interesting and never wanted to do things by halves. I made a commitment to see if I could celebrate two women from all over the world and from all walks of life every single day of that year. And ended up celebrating 757 women from 37 countries and it was by far the most rewarding year of my life and obviously set me down a path I never expected. That's right, you became the accidental activist as you describe yourself. It's interesting, you say there, you know, you're not someone who puts your head above the parapet, but um, then after that you co-author a book with Catherine Fox, <laughs> Womankind, The Power of Women Supporting Women. Um, I used to work with Catherine Fox actually, so I know how absolutely fantastic she is. This this book is about the power of women supporting other women. Do you think that women actively don't support each other, particularly when you compare it to men? Is there a difference? Uh, the total opposite of what you're suggesting. No, I think think women do support other women and that's what the whole book is about that this myth that movies like working girl and virtually every reality tv show that we're all pitted against each other um we believe is a myth and that even if you have an experience and don't worry every single time i talk about this some woman will say oh but i had an awful female boss uh, yes, we all have, but you may also have had, you know, an, an awful male boss or a couple. We don't tend to put the same emphasis on that. Uh, so we do believe that the queen being myth is exactly that. It's a myth. Um, and the, the support we get from women, whether it's your girlfriends or the women at Tuck Shop, if you work at Tuck Shop, or the women you work with on all those toilet conversations where you go into the loo and you know, women support each other. We think uh, that that is where women's support is um, shown every single day and we tend to dismiss it, yet it's incredibly powerful for helping us. 
looking where we are now in terms of female representation and female leadership and, and, you know, all the progress that's been made, but standing right here right now, what's the most critical around female leadership for the next 10 years? Um, well, I think getting more women into government is critically important and that's at all levels of government. Um, then business, community, I think just this acceptance of uh, women being in roles at least 50-50, I would like to see. But the most critical move for us beyond that is that intersectionality of um, gender and ethnicity or gender and sexuality or gender and disability and making sure that we are representing all women and that all women's voices are heard and that we've got Aboriginal women and Torres Strait Indigenous women and women for who are migrant background or whatever it might be sitting around our board tables and in government as well. And it's not enough to just have privileged white women in those roles. And that intersectionality argument, I mean, that applies as, as well for men as it does for women, yes? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I just, uh, I haven't got the uh, the bandwidth, I think, to cover everything. But, you know, while I'm we're thinking about gender, I just know that it's not enough to keep hoping that women who look like me are sitting in those roles. We, we as uh, privileged white women, have a responsibility to see all women in those positions. Thanks for joining me for the leadership lessons, the female perspective you need for the decade ahead. This episode was produced by Lisa Gebelagin. If you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast player and please leave us a rating. To find out more from us, visit womensagenda.com.au and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.